This is Marcus Tonio, and you're now tuned in to Left Coast Pirates Podcast. Continue rocking with us, and I'm out. Peace. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? You know, Tommy, I had to think about this one coming into the podcast. I I thought I was going to come here and and be very, very angry, but as the weekend went along, I I feel like the anger turned into more disappointment. And to be honest... You know what? It's not always just about the results on the court relative to how my emotion is when I come on to this podcast. So I want to share two stories with you uh, relative to my life experience and watching these Seton Hall games over the weekend uh, as we were kind of leading up through Thanksgiving. The first basically starts with me sitting down and getting to watch the game on Wednesday night with my seven and a half year old son, Josh. I mean, he is totally into the game. We're having a great time. And then Powell hits his fourth three-pointer of the second half to put Seton Hall up by 19. And he looks over to me to give me a high five. And he rears back and comes with like this extreme gusto and just completely whiffs. And he's like, Dad, we got to do that better. And he rears back again and gives me this massive high five. And the smile across his face, man, it made a father proud to be watching Seton Hall in that moment with his son. Then my wife walks into the garage and interrupts us watching the game and says, hey, Josh, if you want to make the brownies for Thanksgiving, you better come now. Otherwise, I'm making them on my own. And my son being, you know, the seven and a half year old that he is, you know, he thinks Seton Hall's up by 19. He goes into the kitchen to help mom make the Thanksgiving chocolate chip s'mores brownies, by the way. Delicious. And then I come back in and have to break the news to him that Seton Hall somehow just lost that 19 point lead. And the look on his face was just like, he was bewildered. He was just like, how did that happen? It's a good lesson, Mike. No lead is ever safe. I went from this great father-son moment to I, I, I feel like I have to like walk my son through explaining puberty as to try to explain <laughs> what just happened with this 19-point loss. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Story number two is the following day. So, I mean, I should be sitting back on my couch watching the semifinals of the Atlantis tournament. In, instead, I'm, I'm prepping Thanksgiving dinner and I'm getting texts throughout the entire day from all my friends saying, look what's going on. That should be us. Kind of rubbing salt into the wound, if you would. And, but it is what it is. We wrap up dinner and my brother is over, who I've, I've referenced before in this podcast, is a huge sports fan, but he's a, he's a pro sports fan, not a college guy. And I go to turn on the Seton Hall Southern Miss game and he goes, you gotta be kidding me. Get that off because we're not watching that. Seton Hall Southern Miss, he's like, you have that on DVR, right? You can watch that later. And I'm like, I, I, I do. 
And, and what do I do? I change the channel and I put on a meaningless Falcons Saints game. If we were in the semifinals, I'm sorry, that game is on the television, number eight Gonzaga, number 13 Seton Hall, and there's a prideful buzz in my house. We do not sit down and eat dinner until that game is over. Instead, I'm taking orders from my brother as to what to do with the remote control in my own house. I mean, that, that was frustrating. I mean, I know the sky is not falling after we salvaged a two and one finish for the weekend, but I still find myself here picking up the emotional pieces over what I thought was going to be an emotionally special weekend. And, and, it, and it just wasn't. I mean, don't you feel the same way? Mike, I certainly can relate. Wednesday night, I was relegated to the upstairs bedroom TV because the family wanted to watch some movie. And the outcome of that Wednesday night game ruined my long sports weekend. I came down and there was an immediate, uh-oh, dad's grumpy vibe. And the children just scattered. Normally, they'll ask me, hey, how'd the game go? Did the Pirates win? This time, they just looked and went bang, out of the room. And the sporting weekend had taken a turn. We were both expecting to watch some meaningful games. Games that would have potentially propelled the Pirates into the top 10, perhaps even higher, Mike. I mean, you heard John Fanta. He was thinking... You know, we run the table. We're looking six, seven, something of that nature. And you know what, Mike, what really kills me? I know it doesn't work this way for the team itself, but there was a chance of gaining a little revenge for us fans if we went up against Gonzaga and beat them. <laughs> and then the way the tournament played out, a possible finals against Michigan of all teams. Uh, I knew, I knew you were going to say that. I knew oh, it. Oh, we were going to, it was, we were going to blow the roof off the Casa Kaharski, man. But instead we fell into the loser's bracket and I spent most of the Southern Miss game, Mike, not necessarily angry tweeting, but I was definitely sarcastically tweeting. And then finally on Friday, I was somewhat out of my sporting doldrums. I watched us do what we should do. We beat an inferior team in Iowa State. They're not as good as Seton Hall should be. That's just the truth. Now, I know some fans were excited to see this. Some people are saying that we turned the page. And hell, they may be right. You know, we are a an opinion-based show. Maybe there's opinions right. Maybe ours are right. But personally... I think they're looking at the micro view of the game and I'm more concerned with the macro view of the season. There's a lot of talk about what makes up a quote unquote real fan. Some people look down upon folks that bring up any criticism and take it as being a less of a fan. And I always say I can criticize the government. It doesn't make me a bad American. I can criticize the church. But Father Ferrazzoli always said that doesn't make me a bad Catholic. And just because I criticize the Pirates doesn't make me a bad fan. And while I'm happy that the weekend ended with more wins than losses, I think that page could have been turned during the Oregon game. And we're going to look at that game probably in more detail than a game in November deserves. That that's funny. Your your grumpy dad vibe as the the children scatter. Normally with me, I, when we blow a game like that, something's getting thrown in the garage, and my wife's like, "What what broke? What what's going on in there?" <laughs> I'm like, it, it, "We lost by we had a 19 point lead. Just just let me be. Just let me be." All the sounds in the man cave stay in the man cave.
<laughs> so this week we recap and break down the Oregon game. We take a deep dive into Coach Willard's post-game quotes afterwards. We check in on the offensive progress of the Twin Towers. We talk about how the Oregon loss can affect potential tournament seating down the line. We also do recaps and analysis of the bounce-back wins versus Southern Miss and Iowa State. We take a quick look at the next game versus Iowa State. And then finally, we'll take a look to see how far down the road to 2494 Miles Powell's is after the battle for Atlantis. All right, Tom, but but before you start the recap, I want to I want to add one more thing before we get going here. All right. I just want to remind all of our listeners, this podcast has no agendas. We are truly appreciative for the few hundred listeners that we consistently have since we first started this podcast. We enjoy bringing you the weekly content that we do, but there are times where our viewpoints are not going to be popular with the audience. And we get that, you know, this is not intended to always be a feel good rah-rah type post-game analysis. You know, some, some days it's going to be totally celebratory and I'm wearing the blue tinted glasses and other times, It's going to be critical and it's going to be a bit harsh. On today's podcast, some of the opinions that we share relative to the topics that we're going to cover are going to be a little bit more on the critical side. But that in no way diminishes our passion for the team or our anticipation for what could be down the road for this season to come. We promised ourselves to be true to what we believe we would see and then report back relative to our opinions on what we actually saw. I encourage you to open the dialogue with us on Twitter at El Coast Pirates if you don't agree with us. That's okay. That's the whole purpose of a podcast. That's the whole purpose of debating as a fan base. What are we doing well? What can we get better? What do you like? What don't you like? You know what? So give us that feedback. Be a part of the show with us. You know what? We're not always going to be on the same page. Uh, and today might be one of those days. So are you ready to hit it, Tom? With that being said, opening game of the battle for atlantis for seton hall oregon 71 seton hall 69 the hall got out to a hot start 28 to 18 they were doing it all with the three ball hitting seven of 15 threes with five different players contributing but oregon hung tough thanks to nine offensive rebounds a halftime score 34 to 30 hall seton hall stayed hot from three to start the second half with Three-point shots from Miles Powell and one from Miles Kale. A 15-0 run turned into a 19-point lead. But again, Oregon showed that they had alligator blood and they would claw back. Seton Hall pushed the lead back to 60-50. to After Peyton Pritchard cut the lead to three at 60-57, to Miles Powell went on a mini 7-0 run of his own. But with 6.30 to play, Oregon closed out the game on a 14 to 2 run to steal the game away. All right, Tom. Miles Powell finished the game with 32 points, 11 to 25 from the field, a blistering 7 to 15 from three. Sandro and Kale Bolt chipped in with 10 points, and the team shot 52% from three overall for the game. But Oregon kind of beat them on the inside. They shot 52% from inside the arc. They took more free throws than the Pirates to a staggering 28 to nine clip. They had more offensive rebounds at 15 to nine overall for the game. And they had more rebounds plus 11, 39 to 28. You know what? I decided that I don't really want to break down this game like we normally do. And and what I really mean is, you know what? It's it just the, the game played out the way that it played out. It was kind of obvious. Miles Powell for the first 33 minutes was 
the best player in the country again. And then for the last seven minutes, the offense went into a complete funk. Miles went cold. Nobody else stepped up. And, you know, there's a lot to be desired as to how the coaching played out down down those final seven minutes as well. And we're, we're going to talk about that. So I want to go right to the postgame quotes from Kevin Willard. And I wanted to dissect the game from his perspective. And no paraphrasing this time. We are going to give you the full quote to the question that was asked. You ready? Now, before we get into those quotes, let, let's just put a little perspective into why we were so angry right after the game and it kind of ruined it for us. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. We, I'm, I'm and okay and I mentioned it in the recap, but let's just let's put it out there and make sure everybody remembers. In the first half, with 741 left, we had a 10-point lead that vanished. Okay. Second half, with 1646 to go, it's a whole lot of time. We still had a 19-point lead. 10 minutes and change, we still had a 10-point lead. And then 630, we still had a 10-point lead. And then it went away. So let's go through these This is going to come back to a lot of this offensive drought stuff again. And I, I know a lot of Willard's quotes are going to address that, but there's a lot of it he doesn't address. And I think that's what kind of got me frustrated beyond the monumental loss is kind of hearing the words that Kevin used to describe how to explain what went down. And I, I was like, are we watching the same game or did we just watch the same game together? So lead us off with this first quote. Go ahead. All right. So the question was about the turning point of the game and, and coach Willard went and said, they went small. They picked up their pressure. And I just thought they were so casual with the basketball. We gave them momentum when we had momentum. Unless we fix the rebounding, offensive rebounding, as hard as we've been playing in the half court and getting guys to take tough shots, we're just giving away too many. Someone else has to step up. That's where we need to get better. You ride them as much as you want, but someone has to make the play at the end. Their small lineup really hurts. It really did. It spaced us out a little bit, gave them some driving lanes, and it made it hard for us to go big. We fouled. That's something we're doing a little too much of. I feel like I need a degree in order to like you know, interpret a special degree to interpret what Kevin is trying to say in these post-game quotes. So what was the turning point? He said rebounding. He said, said they were going small. No one stepped up besides Powell. We were fouling too much. The NFL runs a segment uh, called Turning Point, where they focus in on like one key moment in the game and say that play or that five minutes, that turned the entire outcome of the final result. Did, did he do that? Or did he just deflect and point the audience in like five different directions as to why we lost that game? I, I don't think he answered the question. It was even hard reading the comment, Mike, because I didn't. I, there was no point to be made in it. I can't follow it. I can't follow it at all. I'm prefacing it right now that I'm going to get frustrated as we go through these quotes. So let's, I, I don't really know how to decipher that. Let's just move on to the next one. So moving on to the next one is probably going to get us confusing as the last one. Someone brought up the question on Shavar Reynolds late runner to, to end the game basically and he replies playing miles 35 minutes this time of year is really hard not having timeouts has hurt us in the michigan state and it hurt us tonight tried to play a lot of guys early tyree samuel played well and he got hit with a thigh bruise at the end of the first half q was cramping I don't know why we were cramping up. The only guy that should have been cramping up was Miles Powell, the way he was playing. They're denying him. Someone has to go out there and make a play. 
us being small with Sandro at the five. I thought Sandro playing 30 minutes was really tough, but we should never have put ourselves in that situation. Our fouling. I think that's what it really came down to. Us fouling and giving them a chance to get to the foul line. Even though they didn't shoot it great, it gave them a chance to set up pressure and gave them a chance to get back into the game. My, my eyes are rolling up in the back of my head right now. I, I, I'm confused. The question was, give us your comment on Shavar's late runner without a timeout call. Did he even answer why Shavar took the final shot? I didn't even hear Shavar's name in the like the five or six sentences that you just rattled off in that quote. Powell played 35 minutes? What, what the heck does that have to do with Shavar taking the shot? Samuel had a thigh bruise? Sandro played top at the five? Sandro played tough at the five. Why did Shavar take the shot? Because Sandro played tough at the five. It came down to fouling. Shavar took the shot because it came down to fouling? The This one actually makes quasi a little bit of more sense than the last one. You could please almost explain. say please. that please. someone needed to step up and Shavar tried to step up. They said, say that. Say, 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 they were, say they were face guarding Powell on the inbounds and in all the chaos, the only person who presented himself to the ball was Shavar. He turned, he looked up the court, there was nobody on him and he just went with it. Then say that. But the only real point he made was, yes, it should have never came down to that. But moving on. On decision-making to feed Powell or to spread the ball in late games. We had opportunities. We had guys getting down the lane. Us not getting to the free throw line hurt us. Not giving us a break at all. I'm surprised we're not getting to the free throw line as much as we're driving. Our big guys, they're blocking shots, but I need them to, little, to rebound a little bit more. They're not being productive enough on the inside, but they'll get better. But this team will get better. One way or another, we'll improve our rebounding, whether it's tonight outside on the practice court or another time. I'm okay. I, I'm getting a brain brain hemorrhage right now. Did he talk about the offense? Did he, did he talk? The, the question was, do we feed Powell or do we spread the ball around late in the games? You know, relative to making decisions on offense. We didn't get free throws? Has to determine how we pass the ball? Big, bigs blocking shots, but you need them to get rebounds. What the heck does it have to do with offensive selection of shots? Well, what does the bigs rebounding the ball have to do with the offense? I'm going to wrap this one up. I'm, it sounds like I'm going senile here. You are going to work on your rebounding now? After midnight on the practice court? You're complaining about the short turnaround time the next game. Don't worry about that because the next game is now played at 9.30 at night when no one gives a, a rat's you-know-what. But now you're going to go after this game into the wee hours of the night and work on your rebounding. And mind you again, the question was, what was the decision to feed Powell or share the ball with other players? And you're going to talk about going out into the middle of nowhere to rebound at 1 a.m. in the morning. What am I missing? What am I missing? Keep going. He might have been a little shell-shocked as the rest of us were after after having a 19-point lead and losing it, Mike. But moving Uh, on to role player production. I love the way Ty is playing. Tyrese Samuel, meaning. He got whacked a little and is limping around. Playing Tyrese and Sandra together, being small will be good for us. Our sophomores have to play better. Jared and Ant are two guys who I love, but they have to play better. They have to play better in these games, and they're capable of doing it, and they should be doing it. Guess what? I think he actually answered the question this time. They asked him about role-player production, 
And he gave us answers about his role players, but he had no issue throwing Nelson and Roden right under the bus. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't mind if he answers the question directly, if he accepts any accountability for it being his fault. So you finally give me a direct answer and you, and you kill your 18 year old players. Great. Point of reference, Mike, let's just remember that after the Oregon game, he's saying that Jared Roden needs to play better, but we'll get to that. Okay. Willard on disappointment or concern at this point. None. I wasn't going to load up on this. And if we didn't win the tournament, it's a disappointment. It's still only November. I said this a while ago. I think this team is going to continue to get better and better and better. When you play high-level games, we had our opportunities. We had our opportunities against Michigan State. We need to do a little better job with leads and running the offense in terms of quick shots. I think as we round into form a little bit, these games are going to help us on later. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, win the tournament? No, no, we're not, we're not talking about winning the tournament. We're talking about the missed opportunity to play in the winner's bracket of the marquee tournament and build their resume. I mean, th that's why their people are frustrated. Hey, we didn't have to walk out of the Bahamas with the trophy to feel like this was a successful trip or that we seize the moment. I mean, these games will help us later on. When the coach is preaching about moral victories, in my opinion, that's all you need to know about the leadership right now. I mean, what a stark contrast compared to the leadership style of other Hall of Fame coaches out there right now who lost tough games in the same week. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. So Michigan State loses in their first round matchup against Virginia Tech, and Tom Izzo comes out with a quote and says, I want to publicly apologize to the greatest fan group that was here. I feel like I let them down. It's been an interesting couple of weeks, and we weren't sharp today. His best player just had his brother die. He's going through the grieving process. So maybe he got through the first couple of games on adrenaline alone, but now you're now it's the holiday time. You're traveling for a tournament. It's got to be weighing on the kid. Cassius Winston had a really bad game, and Izzo's apologizing. Izzo's apologizing for a loss to his fans that traveled during the holidays to come watch them play. He doesn't need to do that, but he does. Coach K, after they lose to Stephen F. Austin, when, when Duke goes down in that great game, we didn't respond well. That is my responsibility, obviously. In any of the post-game quotes that Willard gave to the questions that were answered, did he take accountability onto his shoulders even once? I don't recall him ever taking any responsibility about the poor inbounding plays, about the lack of sets, about the rebounding, about the lack of poise down the stretch. I don't see him taking anything, never saying I. It's always about we're working through it. The team will get better. When is he going to get better in this regard? So that's the thing. I, if It's a bad loss. It's deflating at the moment. You know, the fans all had bigger things ahead of them that they wanted to see happen with, you know, the opportunity to play Gonzaga, pl play another marquee team in the championship game, maybe get matched up against Michigan. Oh, okay, once we get past all the emotional baggage that comes with that loss, now it's all about getting better, right? I, I, we all can agree that let's look towards the next two games and, and how do we turn that corner? And it's always about the players. It's never about Willard being a part of that process as well. And to me, that's what gets under my skin is, you said it, we as a collective group have to get better come March. It's not just the player's execution, but it's the coach's execution. And I would like to see him act like some of the Hall of Fame coaches that are out there. And I have not seen that. We're not talking about in this one isolated incident in this post game. 
we're talking about this is his mo since he's been here he doesn't shine the spotlight on himself when it comes to the shortcomings of what happened on the court he just doesn't what's interesting at times it seems like he's going to go down to, with the ship or double down so to speak on on his decisions and he and he goes <laughs> through great lengths to defend these decisions i'll give you an example the national sentiment after the Oregon loss was we never had that second scoring option uh, with when Powell went cold toward the end. Well, I'm going to tell you this. You did have a second scoring option that game. Miles Kill had seven in the first half. He hit a three early in the second half. He had 10 points. Then all of a sudden he very basically disappeared from the court. He got minimal time in that second half, especially during that last six minute run where we couldn't put the ball in the ocean. But no one ever takes him to task for that. You had a guy shooting it well. You know, they said Sandro and Miles Kale had 10 points a pop. And still, we had no second option, supposedly. That's crazy. And who replaced Kale in that lineup for most of that six and a half minutes, Mike? Uh, the, the, well, there, there was two segments. The, the first portion, he takes him out for Roden, which in his previous quote you just said, he thought Roden had a bad game. So... I, I don't understand the substitution pattern there. If you think Roden's not having a good game, why are you taking out your 30-plus-minute your starter? But down the stretch, he took him out for Shavar Reynolds. So, I, I look, look, Tom, I, I know you don't want me to preface this section with a, and give any player an excuse. You want me, you know, you want me to take the gloves directly off, but, but I'm not going to do that. I, I get it. If Shavar Reynolds is going to get meaningful minutes down the stretch in important games, then he's fair game for criticism, just like any other player that we break down. What other player on the team do we ever put a disclaimer on before we criticize? And we're not you criticizing the person, we're criticizing the player. Thompson. But we don't. I don't, we don't make have any excuses disclaimer. for him. We don't. We have no disclaimers for anybody else. Thompson has probably taken the brunt of all the criticism we brought to this podcast outside of when you just literally beat up Sandro. But I mean, <laughs> I love other Sandra. than that, you're right. Sandro, no, don't nobody listen, else gets a pass. We played a crucial game against a number 11 ranked team, a top tier team in the country. And down the stretch, we are playing with a player on the court that in my opinion is at a lesser skill set than Kale, Roden or Nelson. And, and, and to be quite honest and fair, we are not blaming the loss on Shavar's no, inadequacies. No, not at all. What, not you know, all. there's plenty of problems. We didn't make any adjustments when it came to breaking the press. Our substitution patterns were poor. We couldn't rebound worth a darn. It was just a bad game in that last seven, eight minutes. So, so this comes back to Kevin Willard, though. This is not a referendum on Shavar. So, you know, it's not like we were getting great games out of everybody, Mike, during that Oregon game. Let's talk about how our bigs are looking offensively. All right. I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, I, this is going to come across as really negative too, but I, I want to start with Ike, right? I mean, coming into the season, all the preseason articles were Seton Hall is returning, all the firepower that they got from last year, and they're bringing in seven-foot transfer Ike Obiagu in the middle and, and that's going to be the piece of the puzzle that puts them over the top and then in the preseason we're reading a lot of behind the scenes comments to say hey maybe we need maybe we need to temper some of those expectations because Ike's offensive skills might be coming along a little bit slower than anticipated so you're going to see great things from him on the defensive side of the floor but don't pencil him in for like you know 10 points yet at the center position Okay, that, that's fine. 
I'm a little disappointed because I'm not seeing much from Ike on both sides of the floor. Let me, let me kind of give you the breakdown. And I'm only going to focus in on what I perceive to be the big boy matchups with a better competition that we faced. And I'm going to limit that to Michigan State, St. Louis, Oregon, and Iowa State. The other teams that we played are inferior cupcakes that don't have the size to match someone like Ike. When we go through the Big East season, there are going to be bigger bodies and better competition that he's going to go up against, similar to those four matchups. In those four games, Ike has played a total of 46 minutes, scored six points, only grabbed six rebounds, blocked three shots, six turnovers, and 11 fouls. How, how do you, how do you, what do you take away from that? It's amazing how lost he looks out there. He's not even, you know, the blocks are the kind of the strangest portion of it because he had a huge block per game average as a freshman at FSU. And we expected some of that to kind of carry over. And he had an entire year last year to basically just work on his skill set. What I don't understand is it looks like the guy has not played basketball. I mean, this wall, he sat out for a whole year. They, they get to practice, right? He he was going up against guys like Ramoro Gill in practice all last year. He's going up against guys like Sandro. But he's playing against Division One competition, you know, while he's sitting out for a whole season. And he looks like he gets on the court and he doesn't belong out there right now. It's it's very head-scratching. And then the, the flip side of the coin is you got Ramoro Gill. So I am very complimentary as to what Gill has, has brought to the team. In the same four opponents, though, or against the same four opponents, offensively, Gill has only scored a total of nine points. And mind you, seven of those nine points came against Iowa State. So their combined average between the, the two of them in those four matchups was 3.75 points a game. And I, I go back to the Wagner game. What did they have, like 18 points and 10 boards? And we were like, oh, my goodness, if we get 18 points from the center position, I'm going to be ecstatic. Sometimes we need to pump the brakes. When we play a, you know, bottom feeder opening night matchup against a team like Wagner, because now I have a, it's a small sample, but I have a sample size of four games against better competition. And those offensive numbers have disappeared. And, and that's scary. So, and I don't want to take anything away from what Gill has brought us on the defensive side, because his effort on the defensive side has been immensely better than I like You keep on trying to pump him up for defensive player of the year in the big East. So Gill is contributing on the court. But what we're getting from the center position is almost a zero now. You used to joke and say, oh, when Shavar's having a bad game, it's like we're playing four on five on offense. So when Shavar's out there right now and you have Gil or Ike out there, are we playing three on five offense? It's close to it, Mike. It's close to it. Here's going to be my biggest overreaction on this podcast. All right. I, I have a friend that always says players transfer for a reason. Yeah, Mike, I I don't buy that. You know, because just because we haven't had success in the with the transfer portal outside of say the grad transfers, which we've had pretty good success with, I don't buy it. Well, I'm watching college basketball, and they're always talking about this guy transferred from here and this guy transferred from there. You can't tell me there's 900 busts out there no, this no, year. No, no, no. So, so I want to take it from a different perspective. You already kind of touched on it. We've had very good success with the grad transfer route. Why? I think it's a lot easier to evaluate the body of work of a grad transfer. So yeah, Madison Jones, Derek Gordon, you know, guys that you've seen play 
and have a significant body of work, you could sit there and say, I know how this guy's going to pencil in. I know that they've already performed successfully at the D1 level. Now, it might be at a lower level, but you've seen a bigger body of work relative to their, you know, their stat sheet, you know, their competitiveness, you know, what their skill sets are. And when you see a player that has come to us from a low mid-major, sometimes those guys get overlooked. So you see a guy like Quincy McKnight and you're like, oh, he's averaging 18 points a game. You know, maybe he was just not scouted the right way. You know, sometimes guys get a two-star rating or a one-star rating and they just didn't get the proper attention. So after you've seen him for two years, you go, all right, this guy's got something. Let's bring him on. I don't expect him to be a superstar at the Big East level, but I expect a guy that can put in 20 points a game at a low mid-major to be a positive piece on the team and and, and that's happened so far but i'm gonna i'm gonna question you on this i'm gonna challenge you so you see what your knowledge is like name the last five power five school tr transfers that came to us not grad transfers like played a freshman year played a sophomore year did a full sit out and came to us from a power five so the the mindset is ah it just didn't work out at that school you like to say didn't fit in the system wants to come back closer to home so highly recruited player skill set to play at a P5 school, and now they're coming back to Seton Hall. Who were those last five guys? I'll give you three off the top of my head, and you can give me the last two, okay, Mike? Right, go ahead. All right, obviously Ike and Thompson. Sure. Okay, so those two. Javon Thomas, who was being hyped up as being a defensive specialist coming Javon off the who? bench. Devon who? And and he and all he did was get beat off the dribble until he got either did he get thrown off or did he did, did, he, he, did he play more than five minutes for the team? Did he play more oh, than five man. minutes? He, and he was just horrendous on defense, man. And you'll have to give me the last two. The last two: Sterling Gibbs from Texas and Brian Oliver from Georgia Tech. Well, Sterling now, Gibbs worked out pretty well for us. And Brian a, Oliver had talent. But he was a productive player. I, I, caused I'm, a little I'm, more gonna, trouble I'm, than his production There you caused, go. But. There you go. Same thing with Brian Oliver. Brian Oliver had talent. Brian Oliver was also known to have issues in the locker room or be a little temperamental of a player, right? Yes, he had that, yes, he had no, that, he had that little right. scuffle in the Rutgers game, right? So, I mean, love love what both of those players could do skill set wise, but we had some more negative PR with both of those players long term than we did positive. So those are five guys that every time we landed one of those recruits, big things were promised or expectations were raised relative to what they were going to add to the team. I don't like what we've gotten so far. Been a mixed bag and basically an empty bag. And I'm just concerned. And like I said, early overreaction, but is it too early to be worried that Kevin has basically had another recruiting bust? Well, let's move on a little bit because there's, well, like I said previously, there's the micro analysis of this tournament. We ended up with two wins and then there's the macro analysis that we lost a game that we shouldn't have lost. And sure, how does this loss potentially affect March? Oh, I, I, you keep on saying it. We, we don't, we're not allowed to have nice things, right? I want a top 10 ranking. I think the top 10 ranking is really important. A lot of people are like, ah, it doesn't matter. You're, you're going to get where you need to be when March comes around. I think being put into the national spotlight all year long is really important. You know, you want that single digit ranking next to your name. That means something. It means something to the fan base. It means something to the recruits. It means something to the fan who doesn't know who Seton Hall is still. I got people that I walk my kid to school and they're like, oh, how's Seton Hall doing this year? 
I'm like, oh, they're, they're doing good. Oh, oh, they are? They are? What are they ranked? Because the, the I used to say the casual fan. I'm like, the stupid casual fan doesn't get it. They see the ranking and they think that's important. So Seton Hall needs that reputation because the fan out in the West Coast has no clue who we are. I, stop trying to pretend because Miles Powell is on a couple commercials or a couple spotlights here or there on ESPN that everybody knows who Seton Hall is. They don't. This was an opportunity to kind of announce our presence and not from a moral victory perspective. I don't know if we would have run the table like Michigan did, but if we had, right? And we would have had, this would have been a very fun segment. This is a very bitter segment. And it's now, but it, but it could have been a very fun segment. So let, let's pretend it was a fun segment. Number one lost this week, Duke lost. Number three, Michigan State lost. Six would have lost with North Carolina. Eight would have lost with Gonzaga. 11 would have lost with Oregon, all within this tournament. Number 12, Texas Tech lost. We honestly, we're not talking top 10. We talked about it with Johnny Fanta. We could have jumped to four or five. I got the announcer back. I got a long list of stupid things the announcer said. But as I'm watching Michigan win the, the championship game, the announcer's like, oh, they should jump to number two in the country. They're not even ranked in the top 25. And he's like, number two, number two in the country. So, so Seton Hall would have won this tournament and knocked off all those teams. Already being 13th in the country, what would we have been ranked? It would have been a lot of fun to talk about, you know? And man, how cool that would have been if we were in the top five. So, Mike, I think the ranking is less important than what we would get on our resume up to this point. I mean, we get to a top five billing and we play the rest of the out of conference the way we should. We should be, we should have been top 10 toward the end of it. But those signature wins, you know, Gonzaga is going to be there at the end of the year. We agree that Oregon is going to get better and better. I, I think that Oregon was picked to win the Pac 12 this year anyway. So you know they were, they're going to they be a high ranking team going toward the end. Michigan, the way they're playing so far man they're going to be a ranked team if we if we ran the table we get all these great signature names onto our resume and that's going to be what's remembered in march when the committee, that's a really good point i, I think what also in, would have happened is that they would have beefed up their strength of schedule right so everyone talks about their out of conference schedule being the toughest in the entire country i, I don't know if you could say that anymore I, I i haven't really compared it side by side with everybody else but if you told me it was Michigan State, the three games in the Bahamas, uh, top-ranked Maryland team at Iowa State, at St. Louis, at Rutgers, yeah, I think hands down, that was the toughest schedule in the entire country. Not anymore. It, it, it's still tough. But you replace Gonzaga and Michigan with Southern Miss and Iowa State. It's it's not the same. It, it's just not. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, what this has done to our schedule it has created a lot more pressure to do well on the next string of games. And I'm talking about at Iowa State, at Rutgers, and Maryland at home. We got to win at least two or three, if not all these games, Mike. I, I don't and disagree. More importantly, I don't more importantly yeah. let, let's pick those games. You got to beat Rutgers. It can't have that loss on your schedule. Sure. Sure. And I think you got to beat Maryland because right now, what is our best win? It's Iowa State on a neutral court. If we can't beat Maryland on our court, that's going to be a that's going to be a problem. They're going to look at that. If you don't beat Maryland and you take two out of the next three, you know, it's a it's a solid nine and three. And but your best two wins now are going to be neutral site, Iowa State and at Iowa State. And we've just handed them now their fourth loss. So we assume that that's going to be a good win going on moving forward. So the, the road win would easily be a quadrant one. But, you know, that neutral site wins trending more to be a quadrant two. 
And we would have had the opportunity if we beat Oregon. That's a quad one win. Oregon's going to be in the top 50 of the net for the entire year. I'll I'll kind of put my name next to that. And you would have had a chance to get another quadrant one win, whether it be Gonzaga or the consolation or championship game. You don't have these quad one wins out of the Bahamas tournament anymore. So Maryland is literally your marquee opportunity that still stands in front of you out of these last three games. So minimum two out of three, but but I'm with you. I think Maryland's got to be one of those two. It just has to, right? And you know what's going to hurt in March, Mike? I don't know that the Big East is as strong as people think it is right now. Because we have not achieved up to the level of that second best conference in the country as people were proclaiming us. Let's take a look. Nova got blown out by Ohio State. It lost to Baylor. Providence. What is going on, Ed Cooley, baby? Penn, Northwestern, Long Beach State, College of Charleston, Marquette just got their heads handed to them by Maryland last night, Xavier lost to Florida, the Johnnies have lost to Vermont and ASU, Georgetown, every time you think they're making a step, they end up losing to a Penn State or a UNC Greensboro. Creighton just got took to the woodshed by the school down the freeway from us, Mike SDSU, by 31 in Las Vegas. These are not good looks for the Go go Aztecs. Oh, geez, man. What's my takeaway from all this? I'm not going to flip the other side of the script here and and go down their best wins, but I I only see one or two marquee wins for the entire conference. I mean, maybe the best two wins, and that's it, is – Creighton, Texas Tech, and Georgetown, Texas, uh, you know, uh, really marquee wins. For, I'm just not seeing it. Here, here's where I want to kind of connect the dots. I don't think the loss to Oregon means that the season's over or that the sky is falling or that we can't have a successful season. We're talking about what it does to impact potentially our seed line come March. Everybody has talked about this at nauseum. You want to try to get a top four protected seed line specifically this year because the East region is going to play their first round games out in the pod in Albany, which is really close to home where the Seton Hall fans can travel and make it a home environment. And if they were to make it to the second weekend, that regional final is being played in Madison Square Garden. So if they would have done well in the Bahamas and gotten into the top 10 and had a very successful Big East season, they were projected to be somewhere between a three or a four seed maybe higher. Why we're kind of picking on the Big East performance so far, I think what you're going to have to do in the Big East to still project to that four seed line or better is going to have to be something in the 14 and four, 15 and three range. And here's why, because I think there's already been a precedent set for what happened last year. I'm going to give you some perspective. You know, without a strong non-conference last year, Nova was 25 and nine and they got a six seed and they won both the Big East regular season and the Big East tournament. Marquette last year before the NCAA tournament was 23 and nine. They had wins over Louisville, a number 12 ranked K-State, a number 12 ranked Wisconsin, a number 14 ranked Buffalo, and they went 12 and six in the Big East, second place overall, and they only got a five seed. What is the path right now to get a top four seed based on this, you know, perception that the Big East has been weak? that you've just illustrated by going through all the bad losses so far. I don't see it right now. No, we're, they're going to have to blow out the rest of the season to get four or better at this point, Mike, or someone's going to have to from the Big East because it's not going to be multiple teams. This isn't, this isn't your father's Big East anymore. 
Okay, so if, if if they go on and they win the Big East regular season, you know, and then they go 13 and five and, and they get a six seed, that's not a bad season. I don't want to come across like, oh, we're a failure if we get a six seed or a five seed. But the ultimate goal was to get to that second weekend. And if you're a six seed, yeah, you, you have a favorable matchup in the first round, but the 6-11 game is no gimme. And then the last time I checked, if, if, if everything stays chalk and you're the six seed, you're playing the three seed. So who's favored to get to this week 16? You or the three seed? It's not going to be us. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Mike, let's let's put a bow on the Oregon game with something positive because we talked about it, and the whoa, did you see that moment comes from that game courtesy of Miles Powell. With about six minutes to go and the Pirates up 10, Shagar Justin cuts to the basket, receives a pass in stride, and goes up. What he didn't expect was his good friend Miles Powell getting over there and meeting him at the rim for a monster block and a monster scream, man. Did you see the the still where they kind of froze it on, on Twitter as he's sitting there, hand on the ball, and he's like a good, like, what, four feet off the ground? Uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. I mean, if, if, if that's my buddy, I'm sending it to that. I'm sending that as my Christmas card to him. No. <laughs> uh, I, what I also thought was cool was if you were following the basketball that weekend, Justine goes to the rim. Uh, against North Carolina in the in the Constellation game, and Cole Anthony did the same exact thing. For him. <laughs> maybe it wasn't bad to miss him, Mike. Maybe it wasn't bad to miss out on him on recruiting. Uh, we had more games, Mike. We need to recap them. Seton Hall 81, Southern Miss 56. Seton Hall got out to an early 11-point lead, but Southern Miss hung tough, closing it to as close as 2, 30-28 with three minutes to go in the first half. The Pirates pushed the lead back out to 9, ending the half at 40 to 31. Southern Miss wouldn't go away, staying within 11 up until about seven minutes left when the Pirates finally pulled away, ending the game on a 17 to 3 run. Powell had 18, 11 points in the second half. Sandro bounced back with a 14 7 and 4 night. Tyree Samuel looked good for a third straight game, finishing with 10 points. Mike, your thoughts? Uh, quick analysis here because it's Southern Miss, right? I mean, the building was a ghost town compared to the other night. I mean, there was intense energy for the last game of, of the tournament in the first round against Oregon. It felt like an NCAA tournament Sweet 16 game. It, it was a pretty cool atmosphere. Conversely, it, it, it there was no juice in the building. It was the fans of those teams who had already bought tickets that came to support. There was there was nobody else there to watch that game. And it just it and it kind of took a lot of the, the the energy from the court as well. If you ask me, the the half court offense didn't show much improvement. I thought the best offense that we had was was off transition defense. Uh, Powell's energy was clearly lacking. He had a he had an off game. I mean, I know you said he scored eighteen points, but he was five of fifteen. Two of nine from deep. Some of those looks weren't the best. And he had three turnovers. And I'm going to kind of put a bow on this by saying Southern Miss is not a good team. They have not beaten a Division One opponent yet this year. After losing to Alabama in the seventh, eighth place game, they are now 0-5 this year against Division One opponents. I, I'm not taking anything away from this game other than I want to go back to the post-game quotes again. Because I think that's where we took the most away from this this ball game. Now, Mike, hold on. Uh, this game itself, I thought it was your typical get well game. This is one of those games where you get your guys out there and you make sure that the guys that are struggling work on things and get it going because you should be in no 
There should be no chance of losing this kind of game. But it, it didn't it turn out that way. Though. Though. It was an 11-point no. game with seven minutes to go. Get well. Yeah, this, it should have been. That's a, what I'm saying. A, a 250 Ken Palm team. They stink. Get well? They, they didn't step on the gas until the you know eight minutes to go in the game. Instead of a get well game, Mike, we got the doghouse game. That, that, that's what I would label it. I, I would label this the doghouse game. Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. Who's, got, who's in the doghouse? We ended up with two guys in the doghouse, one kind of visibly and one kind of mysteriously. So Anthony Nelson got pulled from the rest of the game after one of the Southern Miss guys hit a crazy step back three and then he didn't fight through a pick. After the game, Willard mentions he was late for a meeting and then he didn't like Anthony's body language. But he ended up only playing four minutes for the entire game. And the one that was kind of mysterious was Miles Kale. I mentioned earlier that after the previous game, Coach came out and said, we need better play out of our sophomores. But almost immediately, but about a buck 40 into the game, Miles Kale got pulled. And then after the game, Willard goes on and says, unprovoked, I got on Miles Kale. I'm done being nice to him. I love him. He's such a good kid. But I said to him, you're going to get the Desi Rodriguez treatment from now on. You're not going to like me. And you're not going to like it, but I expect so much more. He's such a good kid. He's such a mild-mannered kid. I think I take it easy on him sometimes, but I didn't take it easy at halftime. And then all of a sudden, I see an aggressive Miles Kale getting to the rim, diving on the floor. He goes from being a minus on the stat sheet to a guy who's looking like he played last year. He needs to play with that edge. Now, if you look at the Oregon game, he basically was your second best player up until the point you pulled him for Roden and then later on with Shavar. And now this game starts up and immediately you traded him in for a guy that you said wasn't playing well. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't I don't get it at all. I mean, if you want to try to take something away from this Kale situation, Kale was doing well, but maybe it was more from the perimeter and we need Kale to be a little more scrappy. Uh, you know, he is your small forward. So you got to expect him to hit the boards a little more. Uh, he's he's got to get in there and rough it up a little bit, attack the rim, which I thought he's... He's been a little more gun shy from doing lately. You know, he, he went to go dunk it recently and got blocked by the rim. I I, I got to see Miles kind of step it up from a, a gritty, you know, get in there and be dirty on the boards and get in there and be dirty offensively. You know, I, I know he can stroke it from three, but that's a little bit soft sometimes. So I'll defend Kevin from that perspective because in the second half of that game, you definitely saw a different Miles Kale. We've been saying this from day one. We, we've been saying Kale has been playing real passive for most of the season it maybe maybe it worked you know because he looked real good in the next game as well you, you don't have a problem with his word choice i gave him the desi rodriguez treatment I, I, what does that I, mean I, I got a real i if i'm desi i got a real problem with that because i, I got a real problem with that too i really do i mean i, I don't know i i think that's a throwing desi under the bus that the only way you got desi's attention was to bench him and, and and you did that for four years and i don't know how much attention you got from him because you did it every year I, I just i don't like using a former player's name to negatively describe the performance or the be the coaching action that you need to take to address a player and in, in, on the current roster i i just think that is degrading to the previous player i think it's wrong to do to the current player just say i'm not getting the effort that i wanted from kale and i was trying to send a message and i was going to be more stern with the message that i wanted to send not i'm giving him the desi rodriguez treatment i, I just i don't like the professionalism from willard on the word choice there 
let, let's let's move on to the bigger issue because at the end of the day, whatever button Kevin pushed, it did work. Kale had a very good game, and he moved on to have a very good game in the Iowa State game. When we break it down, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that. But the bigger issue right now is we don't have a backup point guard. Whatever is going on with Anthony Nelson, this is a major issue. Uh, where, where, where do we start? I, I'm going to support Kevin initially here by saying you show up to a team meeting and you don't give me the right effort on the court, I can pull you. It's Southern Miss. We're not losing that game, right? You want to send the message and only play him four minutes, and send a message to the rest of the teams saying, hey, we got a chance for a special season. We're on site at a damn hotel. There's no reason to be late for a meeting. Bench him. Fine. Go right ahead. But you mentioned that he said that things were going to get back to normal the next game. Well, that didn't happen. Let's hold that thought until we get to the Iowa All right. All right. I'll hold, I'll hold that. I'm jumping ahead. I know I'm jumping ahead, but this point really gets under my skin. But, but I'll hold off. Give me the give me the last quote from Willard from his quote book from Mississippi. Southern Miss, excuse me. Well, he was asked about Miles Powell's off game and the minutes management. And he said, with the amount of time he missed with that ankle and he missed a week with a hip, I'm trying to get him back. He's not even a tenth of what I think he'll be by the time Biggie's play comes around. I want that scoring title bad. I think I want it more than him. I have a number in mind that he has to get to each night. So that's a big factor too. I just want to talk about the Iowa State game, and and now I'm going to get angry. I said disappointed, right? And now I'm going to get angry. Powell is playing at 10% since the injury. He scored 37 points against Michigan State, potentially the best defense in the entire country, and then he comes out with 32 in the second biggest game against Oregon, and he's playing at 10%. You start doing like Walt Chamberlain, you can start averaging 50 points a game. And what what the heck is he talking about? What, what is this hip injury? Did you hear anything about a hip injury? What, what, what's he talking about? And last but not least, now our coach is worried about the scoring record. He's got a number in his head for every game that Powell has to score. Yeah, I got a number for Powell to score. Enough points for us to get the W. That, that's all I care about. Powell's got to score 50. Score 50 if we win. If he's got to score 20 for us to win, that's all I care about. He's got a number for the record. It's, it's fun for us to joke about it. It's fun for us to have a little side segment you know and talk about the players that he's passing this should not even be in the vision of our coach relative to this year at all if it happens it happens he's talking about he's got a game plan for it Tommy Tommy are you trying to get me upset here (laughs) it's a curious comment man I don't know I get that he's trying to support his guy maybe he's thinking it helps with recruits to say hey look look how much I support my guys and their individual quests I, I don't know, man. It's just interesting. Please don't, please don't do the last quote. Please just skip it and spare me. Spare me the pain and misery. Uh, well, Mike, you know, there's no truth to the rumor that I was the mysterious man in the elevator that Willard mentioned during his post-game comments. When asked about the adjusted expectations, he says, Last night was disappointing. I haven't slept yet, and I still love who we are as a team. We are five points from two wins, and that was my other message to this team. I know that Twitterverse is probably probably going nuts. I wouldn't even think about getting on Twitter. If people are going to jump off the bandwagon, great. Just less people to pull around. I still have tremendous confidence in this basketball team. And I, I, I'm not even going to get into the elevator comment. I mean, it's ridiculous for even him to be talk, talking about a random fan that got in his face in the postgame. It shows no focus from our leader. But but let's talk about what he did say. He's talking about moral victories again. Only losing by five points in the games that they should have closed out? That that you're I'm okay with that. I like where we are. I love losing the two marquee games on our schedule. That that's okay? That's the message you're sending your fan base and your team? I, this, someone on rivals put it best. They said 
This is simple PR 101. Is it that difficult instead of talking about the bandwagoners and the Twitterers to talk about the heightened expectation and program buzz? You can't have it both ways. Attendance and expectations are through the roof. And with that is going to come some criticism. Embrace it. I'll the, tell you the what, comments I, that were kind of slammed back and forth. This one resonated with me the most. It's like, hey, you're the figurehead for all of this. There's going to be frustration. You can't let that show through. You don't get to be us with a microphone going off on whatever you want to talk about. You, you got to be the one that steadies the ship. And you can't let a fan get under your skin. You can't let the media ask you a question that's going to ruffle your feathers. You got to be steady Eddie. But don't give me steady Eddie. It's okay that we lost. That, that, that's not the steady Eddie that I want to hear. I'll tell you what. I think he is on Twitter, and I think he read every single comment out there, man. I'm I'm putting it down right now. I think he's uh, at smart Kevin Willard. I think he's the one that reads everything out there, man. Well, that would make sense why he didn't get any sleep then, right? Oh, jeez. Oh, this, know, this, is, this all know, feels stupid. Was... It just feels stupid, doesn't and, it? And what a wonderful segue, Mike, to stupid things the announcer said. Now, Mike, I didn't even want to do this segment this week because we had potentially the worst set of announcers I've ever had to listen to. They went through and did those little timeout segments at the pool and in the water. And oh my goodness, I, I, I just wanted to see the seal nip him in his face when I was watching that. Segment, uh, the the, it was the whole horrendous. production quality was just, I hate cheese, right? I, I don't like, I don't like cheese ball stuff and their entire shtick with the timeouts and even some of their side chatter. It was all, it was all cheese ball. Look, the, the second game that we played was once again, after Thanksgiving dinner, it's 9.30 at night on the East Coast. Nobody's in the building. Nobody's watching on TV. So I, I get it. These, these guys are like, why do we have to be here? They're talking about their Thanksgiving dinner and where do you rank the foods in your Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, man. It's, it, it was just a tough listen. But, but there was specifically a segment in which the game goes to a TV timeout and Miles Powell sitting in the first seat about two or three feet away from Kevin Willard and Powell goes to stand up and he swings the towel up over his shoulder and Kevin is walking back to the huddle and gets clipped in the eye by Powell slinging the towel over his shoulder. And you could see Kevin like grab at his eye like he just got shot or something like that. And the announcers pick up on it and, and Powell's like, oh, oh crap, I got him. I got him. He's like eyeing him up in the huddle. Like, did you do that on purpose? And Powell's like, I didn't mean to do that. Sorry. And then they start making little comments like, where do you get shot from? Was there, was there a second towel? You know, like playing off the JFK, like was there a second shooter in the grassy knoll? I don't think Kevin Muller got hit. It looked like he flopped. And that led to their flop segment where one guy yes. pushed the other guy in a yes. pool. Yes. Oh, that, you know, you think our segues are bad. That was a horrendous segue. Can we just segue out of this game and into Iowa State? I, Mike, I think you're going to be surprised with me on my opinion on this game. But Seton Hall, 84, Iowa State, 76. Iowa State came out red hot, hitting five of their first six shots, leading to their largest lead of the game at 21 to 12. A 20 to 10 run by the Hall briefly gave them a three-point lead before heading to halftime, trailing 33-32. In the second half, the teams traded leads nine times over the first eight minutes of play. The games remained close until a 12 to two run, culminating in a Sandro three with 4:39 to play, giving the Pirates an 11-point cushion they needed to close out the game. All right, some key stats. Miles Powell scored another 24 points, this time 19 coming in the second half. Sandro stepped up big time with 18 points. 
six boards and three of four from deep. See, Tommy, he can shoot it. Kale led the team on the glass with 12 rebounds while also adding eight points and four assists. Quincy McKnight did a little bit of everything. 12 points, three rebounds, four assists, three steals, and countless floor burns. Rasheed Bolton and Tyler Halliburton had solid games for Iowa State with 20 and 19 respectively. But the Pirates held the remaining supporting cast in check. Seton Hall shot a blistering 61% from the field in the second half, and the Hall dominated the glass to a tune of 38 to 22. However, they did turn the ball over 17 times, 12 coming from the backcourt, something they will need to clean up if they want to win again at Ames next week. Now, Mike, like I said, you may be surprised at this, but I think Kevin Willard had a really good game here. And and I'll tell you why. You know, you know, John Rothstein put out a quote out there, you know, Kevin Willard's got more adjustments than a chiropractor. And actually, Willard did a few of the things that we've been crying for for weeks and weeks so far. What did he do? He put a three-guard lineup out there, pushing Q to like a quasi-two position. We went small at one point where we had Kale basically being the four and Sandro at the five. And these things were quite successful. Now, mind you, we aren't necessarily happy with, with his substitution patterns during this run. But hey, kudos to Kevin for seeing what the game was giving him and how the Pirates could become successful. I agree. The bigs did not have the same impact in this game like they've had in other matchups throughout the year. They were not disrupting Iowa State at the rim. Iowa State with Halliburton and Bolton were easily taking advantage of the pick and roll basketball at the top of the circle and getting to the rim uncontested. God, those guys were fast. Oh, they were. Absolutely. Gil and Obiago could not recover from the high ball screen to get back to protect the rim. They were kind of creating like this quick beeline with the extended, you know, underhand scoop layup. It it was, you know, it was just right to the rim and that kind of neutralized them. And Kevin was smart. And by the second half, he's like, I got to play smaller. I have to make the adjustment. I I love the comment from what Fanta said going into this preview. You don't want to have the other team manipulate the changes on the floor and take away what you perceive your strength, which is all this height at the five, but they did. So there's no point in getting beat over the head with it over and over again and let those teams get easy shots. He made the adjustment. They buckled down on D and and we played some good offensive basketball down the stretch. Now, I'll say this, the Kale Sandro McKnight triumphant there, they made the difference that night. And I'll tell you, Sandro had a fabulous game, and I'm not counting the Southern Miss game because I knew Sandro was going to have a great game against Southern Miss because it was crap competition. But him coming out strong during this game was nice to see. McKnight, in, especially in the second half, had a had about three or four nice feeds to various people. Miles Kale played like the Miles Kale from last year. Man, they were just moving really well. I, I find it just completely amazing that with all the things that we can pick on for, the, for this three-game set, you found a way to sneak in a Sandro jab. I'm, I'm sitting there going through all the notes, and I'm like, you know what? I Sandro just paid wasn't him a, a compliment. I said, how no, you great didn't. No, you play. didn't. You know, Sandro had a great game against Iowa State. A great game. Didn't it I was, say that? No, you had to preface it with, I can't give the kid any credit for having a good week overall because, you know, Sandro beats up on crap competition. Did he have a good game? Do you think 10 and 4 against Oregon was a good game? No, 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 no. Okay. But you picked on it. You picked on him for the Southern Does Miss. Does Southern, Southern Miss, Miss count? But you have to have, someone's got to have a good game. Someone's got to 
to have a good game. He had a good game. You don't want to be impressed by a he fine. Did well, he did well. Iowa State, kudos. Kudos to Sandro. You're, 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 you're upset that the fan base has got a podcast that's going to run two hours long. Mama and I got to waste three minutes defending Sandro for some reason. No, I, I look. The, the supporting cast was awesome. When when these three guys can play the way that they played in the Iowa State game, I truly believe that we can beat anyone in the country. The ball was moving. Everybody was involved. And you know what? I think it has a huge impact on Powell. So Powell, I just felt like he was pressing the first half. You know, he was two of nine. He had an offensive foul where he was kind of out of control going the basket. He put up an air ball on a three-point attempt coming off one of his double picks. He looked out of sorts. Even the announcer said it. It looked like he was kind of just trying to force things and put the entire team on his shoulders. But in the second half, completely different. Seven to 10, he let the other guys make the plays. And guess what happens? His shot came to him a lot easier because he truly got it within the flow of the offense. And therefore, because he didn't have as much pressure, he got the big buckets when we needed the most in the second half. And that that's the recipe for us to win. Powell puts us on his back when he has to. You know, he puts in 20 to 25 a game. And we get Kale, Sandra, McKnight. And if one of them has a bad game, maybe insert a Rodin, maybe insert a Samuel instead. But we have a collective supporting cast to carry the load on a night-to-night basis. None of this Batman and Robin stuff anymore. This, this was it. I really did like this game. I really did. Now, it wouldn't be us if we weren't negative about something. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm this gonna is, is going to get under my skin, but... We have to talk about it. We, so we have to talk we'll about start this. off with saying that after the Southern Miss game, when asked about Anthony Nelson, Coach Willard said, tomorrow it goes back to being normal. And then Anthony Nelson plays a buck 32. And instead, and Sh- yeah, I know it. Shavar plays 20 plus minutes, a lot of time at the point, which is not his position, nor does he have the skill set for. Oh, we're going to do two Shavar Reynolds segments no, today. Well, no, two. His final stats don't look horrible. No, they don't. However, from an eye test standpoint, he's got poor out of control drives. He had zero assist and zero offensive movement while he's playing point guard for long stretches of time. Again, it's not his skill set. It is not his wheelhouse. There is nothing going on from an offensive point guard standpoint when he's running point. See, my bigger issue is we're talking about the eye test here. We'll, we'll talk about stats and the Shavar versus Nelson argument in a second. I consistently observe him getting beaten off the dribble by the guy that he's guarding. And I, this is this is my point of frustration. The feedback is Shavar has great energy. He brings us energy. So in the first half, him and Jared Roden came into the game and we were down by 10. And I agree the energy that him and Roden brought to the team on the defensive side of the floor was great. Kind of changed the tide in the first half. Shavar even hit an open three to contribute offensively. They were part of the reason why we came back and got that game close at halftime. And, and it was only a one point deficit. But in the second half, it, it, that didn't happen. His guy beat him off the dribble in the Oregon game. Pritchard beat him off the dribble. I'm tired about, well, he gets up on his guy really far extended on the defensive end past the three-point line. The guy's going to blow by you off the dribble. You shouldn't do that. So I know Nelson doesn't get in the guy's face, you know, 30 feet from the basket. That's just not what he does. He also gets beat to the basket too. But what I don't understand is why if Nelson is in the doghouse for some of his poor plays, specifically around a bad turnover, getting beat off the dribble, why is Shavar not held to that same standard? Why is he not get held to that standard, Mike? Because he brings that energy. You know, it's like having that ex-girlfriend who had that great personality. Mike, 
it, it, it's because that's what they can say. I mean, because if you look at it from an analytical standpoint, he's not bringing anything else. I, I just want consistency. I, and this is kind of my common theme for basically the entire podcast. I just think Kevin is spewing stuff in these quotes that have no you know, continuity relative to what he said, either the previous game or even in an earlier quote. I mean, here, here's the last one for the docket tonight, okay? Willard's quote on why Anthony Nelson only plays two minutes in the game against Iowa State. I put him out there, and sometimes you're just a little bit of a funk. You know, he played really well against Oregon. Oh, oh, remember that thought. I think he's just got down on himself like everyone everyone else. Sometimes when you're playing these games, you can't get down. You've got to get yourself back up. I have a lot of confidence in Ant. We have a whole week to practice. I'll get him back into the rhythm. I have a lot of confidence. We need him because he can't. He can get in the lane and get guys shots. It didn't he have a bad game against Oregon? We're, we're going to go through the plus minus stats in a minute because everybody seems to love plus minus to justify Willard's decision here, but he, he had now a great game against Oregon. I, I, if he had a great game against Oregon, why did you bench him against Southern Miss? Here's my thing. I said it earlier in the podcast. I'll say it one more time. If Anthony Nelson missed a meeting and that is an egregious violation in the culture of your program, then say it. No, he was he late to a meeting, policy. Michael. He was late to a team meeting. Doesn't matter. Whatever you look, Tom Coughlin used to say, if you're on time, you're late, right? So, I mean, whatever your standard is, and that's the culture that you set for your program, then the players need to abide by that, and they all have to kind of be unified in one front as a team. Nelson violated that unity, then fine, penalize him. But just come out and say, we have a standard, we have a common goal, we have big aspirations, and either you're on the bus or you're going to be riding the bench. Don't justify and say, well, well, Shavar's playing good, and I like his numbers, and I like his energy, and like as you say to me, he's doubling down to prove a point. Mike, I, I think with Anthony Nelson, I don't know what he's going to get out of just practice. He's been in a funk for most of the season. I think he's got to get PT to play his way out of this. We know what he can do. We've seen it in spurts. He needs the PT, I think. Uh, I, I like. I'm get. I'm getting dejected now. No, don't get dejected, Mike. We still got miles to go before we sleep. I just don't think everybody responds to the same management style, and this kind of goes back to me trying to equate this to real life. And you know, in, in my career, when you're a manager of you know multiple employees, you can't give everybody the Desi Rodriguez treatment. Not everyone's going to respond to the same heavy handed, you know, harsh treatment. Some people need the arm around the shoulder. Some people need the positive reinforcement. So if this has been his new style to drop the hammer with the Desi Rodriguez treatment and it's working for Sandro and it's working for Kale, it might not work for Nelson. Here's my concern. You don't have any more point guards. You got other guys and you have depth at these other spots. Q is a pseudo point guard. He's a, he's a lead guard playing point. He's doing an admirable job. Shavar is not a point guard. We are not going to go down this road again. Shavar is not a point guard. So he's justifying his decision to get Anthony Nelson out of a funk by putting a non-point guard into a position in major games that we need to win to bolster our resume. That's concerning. I don't think anybody doubts that Nelson needs to be a big part of this puzzle, and I'm concerned that you could lose him 
down the road. People what? try to justify, right? And they try to justify based on statistics. Well, which statistic drives you worse? Them quoting his, you know, his limited field goal percentage from three-point range this year, or does the plus-minus drive you more nuts? How, how's the line go? There lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics. Now, he's got some gaudy three-point shooting numbers this year, Mike. I mean, seven for 11 this far into the season, that's pretty amazing. So we took a look into it. And what did we find, Michael? We found that there's a little bit of a mirage here, right? So to me, it, it all depends on the quality of competition. We, we want to be fair, right? So we did it to Ike and said, let's back out the four games against inferior competition. And let's really just focus on, focus on the, the better comp. Well, we did that for Shavar. We had three big games on the docket in Oregon, Iowa State, and Michigan State. And in those three games, Shavar only attempted three three-point attempts out of the 11 that he's taken so far in the year. And he went one for three. It's whatever it is. It's respectable, right? But against everybody else, he shot six for eight, 75%. And let's be be fair in most of those other games did he not compile those statistics during back end of the gameplay i.e garbage time to his credit he's hitting them this year but let's not make a mountain out of a molehill well like i said if, if he's gonna get 20 minutes a game against stiffer competition i i would just like to evaluate that sample you know over a longer stretch of time before i evaluate his sharp shooting three-point skills that, that, that's all I, I would do the same with anybody else. We said it with Kel. Kel was 7 of 14 early in the season. We're like, hey, that's great. He's 50%, but we don't believe that he's a 50% three-point shooter. We were try hoping that he would just shoot more if he's going to shoot at that kind of a clip to see if it's going to you know, sustain itself. Shavar last year was 5 of 26. I'm concerned that if he shoots more, we're going to trend more to that number from last year. And maybe I'm wrong, but... I don't like the sample size relative to the competition. The other stat that I, I drives me nuts is someone saying that Shavar Reynolds right now is playing better than Anthony Nelson just because of the plus minus in the last three games. You can cherry pick stats all you want, but if you dive into the number and really break down the plus minus, I think there's a lot of bogus behind this number as well. Let, let's look at the full picture of the year for plus minus. I'll go quickly through it so we don't have you on this podcast for three hours this week, but Wagner, Shavar Reynolds, plus 17. That's nice. Anthony Nelson plus 15. Stony Brook, Shavar plus 13. Anthony Nelson plus 15. Michigan State, Shavar plus four. Nelson minus two. Nelson played 17 minutes. Shavar only played four. Pretty close. St. Louis, Shavar plus three. Nelson plus eight. Florida A&M, Shavar plus 21. Nelson plus 16. I'm going to pause before we get to the last three games while we're in uh, the battle for Atlantis. Did anything jump off the page from the plus minus that said Shavar was playing better than Nelson based on the plus minus that I just threw at you? If anything, Mike, they're at a standstill. Over the course of time, how do I say this? I honestly think plus minus is a better number for hockey. I just do. Does a, does a plus four in only four minutes tell you anything? The, that, that's similar to analyzing the minus five that Nelson had against Iowa State. He plays a total of a minute and 32 seconds. He plays three defensive possessions, and he goes minus five in those three defensive possessions. They weren't great, but that, that doesn't tell me the, the big picture of what really happened in that game. He played two bad possessions, three bad possessions. Willard didn't like the immediate response versus what he did the game before, and he put him back on the bench again. Don't tell me Willard benched him because he had a minus five. That's that's just stupid. And, you know, Mike, so you're the you like that whole plus minus thing. I look at his minute 28 during that game. Is that the amount of time you can give 
a kid to set, to get out of the funk? No, and that's why I didn't even give you the plus minuses for the last three games in Atlantis. I mean, in Oregon, Shavar was an even zero, and Nelson was a minus seven. So this is what blows my mind. Willard loves, he loves himself some plus minus, right? But, and in his quote, Nelson had a great game against Oregon, and he was minus seven. So he talks out of both sides of his mouth, and, that, and that's what gets me frustrated. I want my coach to be confident. I want him to be consistent. I want him to hold his players accountable to what he's putting out in the media. Just give me it straight. So when Nelson's a minus seven and you tell me plus minus is so important and then you get in your post game and go, oh, we're going to get Nelson straight. He had a really good game against Oregon. No, I, I, I can't sit back and say that that's okay. He got benched. You're having internal issues with him. It is what it is. Shavar did not play in those two games because he's playing better basketball than Nelson. Nelson's in your doghouse. And the only guy that you have left that's even a guard on this roster is Shavar Reynolds. And that's it. You're, you're out of options. Well, all we can hope is that the week off and the practices gets Nelson's head right because we've got that rare back-to-back out-of-conference game. We've got Iowa State. What do we know of them? Their heavy guard play. They seem to play a frenetic style that works for them sometimes. I think they kind of ran out of, they, they got a little sloppy toward the end of it, but we're playing at their house, which is supposedly that's a huge advantage for Iowa State. Well, Mike, Hilton, what do you think? Hilton Coliseum is known for being a very hostile environment. I mean, in, in the game that you watched, it wasn't like the Southern Miss game. Both fans got engaged for the Seton Hall Iowa State game, and both fan bases travel really well. The Iowa State crowd got loud early in that game. It felt like it was kind of like a semi-home environment until we rallied back and even things out. If they could be that loud in a neutral site, I expect them to be really loud in their own building, and that's the reputation that their fan base has. So I expect it to be a hostile road environment. I'm going to quote John Fanta again. You know, you probably were in a bad situation no matter what with this back-to-back because if you beat them, it's a revenge game. If you had lost to them, where's, what's your confidence trying to go on the road? Well, now it's a revenge game. And, like, I'm going to come across sounding just like a really like a jerk this entire podcast, I guess. If Willard has as many adjustments as a chiropractor, we should be fine because he'll make the adjustments off of what he saw. Do you have the confidence that he'll make the right changes relative to what got him the victory in the second half once again when we go into Ames nine days from now? So what did what did we do that got the victory? I think one of the big things is on defense, we got up in their grill. We we started picking them up and pressing them hard, and that caused Halliburton to kind of play out of control at times. Sure, sure, but are you going to get those calls, or are the calls going to go against you when you're in a road environment? So if What calls Shavar were we getting Q... this past week, Mike? We weren't getting any calls. Well, I'm not worried yeah, but, about but that. It's completely different when you're truly on the road in someone else's building. So now you're saying let's push the, the the pace or the tempo and extend our defense well beyond the three-point line, which Q and Javar both like to do, and, and it does disrupt the defense, excuse me, the offense for the opponent. Uh, Roden likes to do that. Kale likes to do that. You could easily get a couple nickel-dime reach-in fouls and all of a sudden be in some you know issues on the road. I, I can't have Q do what he did in a couple games last year where he picks up two fouls before the first four-minute timeout. Just can't. If you're telling me that Q's going to do that and we're not going to play Nelson, we're in big trouble. Q, Q was the game changer, if you ask me, in that second half. 
I think the key for this game is to avoid that initial run that Iowa State put on us. I think it kind of shocked the guys at first where they came out, they were shooting the lights out. And then once we got up in their faces, things changed and they changed pretty quickly. I'll give you one more key takeaway going into this next game. Everyone just assumes because Q, Sandro, and Kale all played very well complimentary games to Powell all at the same time that everything is fixed. We've turned the corner. What was the biggest issue with the team last year? With those guys. We disappear after times. You know, we'd we have, one we good have consistency game and issues, we right? Come back with another okay. good game. So you believe that just because all three of them had good games against Iowa State, that we just expect them to do it again now? No, I, 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 like I said previously, man, I thought that turn to page game was going to be that Oregon game with the way we were playing. I, that was the game. This, no, we beat a team we should beat. We should beat this team if they're at home. We should beat them on neutral court. Now that we're going to the house of horrors in Ames, Iowa, maybe <laughs> that will be a little more difficult. But I'm still saying, and I know the prognosticators are saying it's going to be tough to beat these guys back to back. You know what? They play that frenetic style. They get out of control. We can beat them. So, so absolutely impressed by, by how they played that game to wrap up the, the Bahamas strip. They duplicate it with the same effort and the same result. I will come on the next podcast and sing their praises because a back-to-back performance, neutral site, and on the road, and you get consistency from your supporting cast that you need to go deep into March, I'm going to be really impressed. Then I'll sit there and say, collectively, those two Iowa State games may have got them to turn the corner. But then they're going to have to back it up. At Rutgers, home Maryland, it just doesn't ease up on the schedule for them at all. You mentioned how good of an effort that those three had. You know who else had a good effort this past week, Mike? Miles Powell, he scored a battle for Atlantis record with 74 points over the three games. And now Miles stands alone in ninth place all time on the Seton Hall scoring list with 1,850 career points. Not only did he pass the great Walter Dukes, but he passed a former teammate in Kadeen Carrington. All right, so let, let's do this. You you take one, I'll take the other. We said that as they pass these guys, we want to kind of do a historical retrospective to kind of give those players their due in Seton Hall history. Kind of feel like we, we forget about some of these guys as the years go by, and as people pass them in the record books, you know, they, they kind of drop down a rung and, and they kind of lose some of the the recognition they should be getting. So I'll I'll do Walter Dukes, and then, and then you could do Kadeen. Walter Dukes is now 11th on the list. But Walter Dukes is a pirate great, and he goes way back. Dukes had 1,789 career points, and he played back in the 50s, 1950 to 1953. But he only had three seasons because back then, for those who don't know, you didn't play varsity ball as a freshman. You only got to play three years relative to your your record book totals. His number five is one of only eight numbers retired in all of Seton Hall history. So that tells you something right there. Dukes led the team to the 1953 NIT championship. And during his career, the team had a record of 80 and 12. And in 1953, the NIT meant something. It was at that point on par with the NCAA tournament, if not meaning more to win that specific title. He averaged 18.9 rebounds per game in his career. In his career! And in his senior season in which they won the title, 
22.2 per game and set an NCAA record with 734 boards that year. That same year, he was voted NIT MVP and consensus All-American first team. He later went on to play eight seasons in the NBA. And if you ask me, they did the Mount Rushmore for Seton Hall players in that halftime game recently. Walter Duke should be an automatic Mount Rushmore, if you ask me. The former number nine all-time scorer on the Pirates list, Kadeen Carrington, which most Pirate fans that are listening should recall. He played for four years and scored 1,846 points. He had 29 games of 20 points or more throughout his career. Had a career high of 41 in a home win against Creighton in February of 2017. And was a member of three different teams that made it to the NCAA tournament. In 2016, he was first team all biggies tournament. He was absolutely fabulous. And but for Isaiah Whitehead standing on his head in that championship game, he probably would have been most outstanding player of that tournament. He was also in 2016 and 17 voted as second team all biggies. So these are two big names that Miles Powell passes. I got a couple quick points on Kadeem before we move on. We said this during our interview with Shaheen Holloway. I, he sacrificed some of his scoring numbers that senior season to move over and play point guard. You know, Shaheen says he did it willingly or he wanted to do it, but Kadeem averaged 17 points a game as a junior, and his numbers kind of tailed back a little bit to almost 15 points a game his senior season. I think if he would have got a chance to play his natural two guard, he probably averages 20 points a game and, could be easily much higher on this list. But the moment that I will always remember about KC is in that 41-point performance against Creighton. Creighton's trying to come back late. You know, they're trying to roll the ball in and save some clock. And they're down by maybe, you know, I think it was like four points or so. And KC was having none of it. They rolled the ball to like the left corner by midcourt. And KC comes flying across, head first dive, picks up the ball, goes in for an emphatic slam. That was one of the coolest moments I've ever seen in a game. And then Desi Rodriguez is at half court with four fingers on one hand and a big circle in the other kind of signaling the KC like that was 40, baby. That was 40. Uh, it was just, just an awesome moment that year. Up next on the list, potentially my favorite pirate of all time, Andre Barrett at 1861. So I'm thinking he's getting by Andre real quick. Next game. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's hope. <laughs> All right. But before we go, we, we kind of have to add, uh, end on a somber note. Uh, so with a heavy heart, we need to speak of the passing of the nope. former pirate Keon Lawrence. Keon unfortunately passed away this week. He was a Newark, New Jersey native. He attended Weekwake High School, started for the University of Missouri. He eventually transferred to play for the Pirates during the Bobby Gonzalez days. He played sparingly for the program for about a year and a half, but once a Pirate, always a Pirate. We pass on our condolences to Keon Lawrence's family and friends, you know, and, and we wish them all well in this difficult time. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates.